Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. The nation lost a giant figure late last week. Now we're just receiving word into the newsroom that the Supreme Court has announced Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. This week, a sad farewell. And now the flag-draped casket of Justice Ginsburg is being carried up the steps toward the towering columns at the U.S. Supreme Court. A fitting send-off for an American figure who touched the lives of generations. It has been said that Ruth wanted to be an opera virtuoso, but became a rock star instead. This week on 880 In-Depth. Stories about a life well-lived, an extraordinary life. She's been an inspiration that you can be any kind of lawyer that you would like to be, regardless of your gender. She would do birthday parties for everybody, and her husband Marty would bake a cake for us. It was so sweet. What we learned in life, and what can we learn in the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and we couldn't possibly tell the full story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in this single podcast. We simply set out to hear more about her life and how her life inspired others, and how she will be remembered by those who knew her well. Well, I think um, one of the key lessons that Justice Ginsburg taught me, and I think one one of the many ways that her colleagues will remember her, is as a gentle giant who was collegial. And uh, again, she knew how to make a forceful argument in the most courteous and thoughtful way. And I think all of us on both sides of the political spectrum would benefit from following that example. Meet David Schizer, who is remarkable in his own right. In 2004, Schizer became dean of the Columbia Law School. He was 35 years of age. He became the youngest dean in that school's history. He held that post for 10 years, and today he's still on the faculty there as dean emeritus. While Justice Ginsburg began her law schooling at Harvard, she finished up and earned her law degree at Columbia. But that's not why she and Dean Schizer were close. A year into the justice's Supreme Court term, David Schizer became one of her law clerks. Dean Schizer got on the phone with our Peter Haskell this week to tell us about his friendship. I met Justice Ginsburg when I interviewed for the clerkship in 19... 
gosh, 92, December of 1992. Actually, it might have been 91, but in the early 90s. And um, obviously, her reputation preceded her. She was a towering figure uh, in um, you know, the history of the law. So I, I was uh, unsure what to expect. And, and what I found was a, um, a, a warm, soft-spoken woman uh, who was showing no sign of the ego she certainly deserved to have. And one of the striking things when you would meet Justice Ginsburg for the first time is that she speaks slowly because she thinks carefully about what she wants to say. So uh, you're wise to be patient. As you began to work for her, what struck you about her? She was remarkably intelligent, and I've been privileged to meet uh, many gifted people over the course of my career, but I can't think of anyone more gifted intellectually uh, than she was. She had a remarkably analytical mind. She had uh, an amazing memory. Uh, I still remember as a law clerk, uh, she would call us into the office and say, I did this quote from memory. Would you please check it for me? And I think it's on this page. And of course, the page was from her memory too. And uh, I could tell you Many times she was right, and I can't think of a single time she was wrong. When you talk about the intellect, how was that demonstrated? Was it, it obviously goes beyond the memory. Was it the way she was able to uh, analyze a case? Was it a way she was able to find the right precedents? Or I don't know. You tell me. So there's a cliche about the Supreme Court that you have wise, mature people surrounded by clever young clerks who help them implement their vision. And Justice Ginsburg had the capacity to play both roles. She could certainly step back and think about the systematic implications of a case, the far-reaching effects it could have in different areas, and so she had that wisdom but at the same time, she also had that raw analytical power, the ability uh, to sort of think about the best way to argue the case. And of course, she was a brilliant advocate, too. So really, intellectually, she was the whole package. And she took on issues, and you got to know her, she took on certain cases where she made her name. Is what you describe the way she was able to find these cases and find the arguments that resulted in these major changes, especially when it came to gender. So Justice Ginsburg is one of those rare people who had two remarkable careers, because of course she had uh, profound influence as a justice and as a judge, but you could make the argument that she had at least as much influence um, as an advocate before she became a judge. Because when she began uh, the project of trying to move the law uh, and to persuade courts to acknowledge uh, gender equality as something guaranteed by the Constitution, when she started, I don't want to say she was starting from zero, but she was there at the beginning. And she won a number of major cases and um, really made the most creative and insightful arguments. It, it, it was a remarkable achievement. 
Is this something that she kind of wore on her sleeve, be it the liberalism that she was known for, or at least on the court, or the kinds of cases? Was was it easily or readily apparent when you dealt with her? She was a very soft-spoken person, and she was the last person to take credit for anything and uh, would always receive a compliment by suggesting that it was really someone else who should be receiving the compliment. So she didn't wear anything on her sleeve. But I will say the cause of women's rights was a, was a personal one for her. And I think it tapped into her own experiences. Just keep in mind, she was at the top of her class in law school. And then when she graduated, she could not find a job. She just couldn't. And she'd spent a summer doing excellent work at a major law firm, as her classmates had done, and they all got offers. And she didn't get one. And uh, I guess it was about 10 years ago she was reflecting on this with me. And uh, and she said, I, I, was, um, I was a woman. I was also a mother. I had a young child. And I was a Jew, which made me a triple threat. <laughs> and she laughed. Um, and I said, and, and what did they say to you when, when they told you you weren't going to get a job? And she said, oh, that was very simple. And she smiled. And she said, they told me they'd already hired a woman. <laughs> so the point is, for someone so gifted and so accomplished to hit a brick wall that way, let's just say it got her attention. And she knew that she would be okay, and of course she was, but she also knew that lots and lots of people would face the same barriers, and she was determined to bring those barriers down. So, as you mentioned, she was a Jewish kid, grew up in Brooklyn, didn't have a silver spoon in her mouth. You know, her family was not well off. How did that inform or help her develop into the person that she became? So, she had um, a loving and supportive family, but she also faced tragedy as a young girl. She was extremely close to her mother, and her mother was... Um, a powerful influence. Her mother told her, Ruth, you can do anything. Um, but horribly, her mother passed away. Uh, it was actually the day before her high school graduation. My recollection is she was the, 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 the class valedictorian, but she didn't come to the graduation because she was in mourning. Um, and so I, I do think that that loss made her very mindful of her mother's legacy and of wanting to live up to her mother's expectations, but it also gave her a certain strength, a certain steely-eyed determination to overcome difficult things, and she took that strength with her throughout her life. Did she necessarily talk about these things when you would speak to her? She was um, private in the sense that she wouldn't volunteer these things. But if you ask, then yes, she would. And um, she absolutely uh, revered her mother, and, and, and she would talk about her occasionally. Um, so I felt privileged because uh, I, I, was, I was able to ask questions that, that she would answer. What was she like as a boss? She was fabulous. I mean, she, she was... Um, just as a role model, setting an example, I've never seen anyone with her work ethic. She would work late, late at night. I mean, she, she did not like to get up early. She would get up early when court was in session. Otherwise, she'd get up sort of in the late morning. But she was working until 4 in the morning. She was 
just nonstop, so committed to the country, so committed to the court. She worked very hard. Uh, and at the, so, so she had um, appropriately high standards for her clerks, but at the same time, I really think she viewed herself as much as a teacher. She was a boss, and uh, I learned a great deal from her. Um, she was also kind. You know, there was a time I went to the dentist, first couple of weeks of the job. I came back. She, uh, she, she asked me to come in, and she said, how was it? Are you okay? <laughs> and I have to say, I, I, I thought that was the beginning of the conversation, but that was the reason she called me in. She just wanted to make sure I was okay. She was very maternal with us. Was that kind of uh, personal concern different than other justices? Well, I think the relationship between a judge and her law clerks is a special one, but, but I, so I, I, I couldn't speak to others. Uh, but I will say that for Justice Ginsburg, we were remarkably fortunate. Um, she, would, uh, she would do birthday parties for everybody, and her husband, Marty, would bake a cake for us. It was so sweet. Was that kind of, I mean, you talk about a demanding atmosphere, and, but you also describe a certain kind of warmth. How did, how did the warmth come out beyond what you describe, or was it just the, the kind of environment that she fostered uh, with her staff? So um, it was casual in the sense that she, you know, she wanted the work to be first rate, but she didn't care what we wore. And we were usually significantly more casual than uh, the other justices' clerks. Uh, I think I wore jeans. I wore shorts. She, you know, she, she was fine with that. Um, the other thing about the justice is if you had work to do, she very much hoped you would get it done. And if you happened to have finished it, there was no need to be there. So there was no element of what you might call putting in face time in the office. Um, she was just very professional in saying, I need your best work. I know you're doing it. It doesn't look like you have much to do. Do you need to be here? You know, that, that kind of thing. What was your relationship like after you left? And, and how, how and how frequently did you keep in touch? Well, I, I was a bit lucky to have reasons to keep in touch with her. I, uh, she was very much a mentor to me. could even say a guardian angel. Um, she also... Uh, was a very proud uh, alum of Columbia Law School, where I am on the faculty and had the honor to be the dean there for 10 years, and she loved the school, and so that was still another reason why we were in touch. But uh, I think for me, uh, I was in very regular touch. Sort of every We would exchange emails pretty regularly, and we'd, we'd see each other every few months. What did you learn about her after you left? So you had this experience, you work with her frequently, you see her all the time, you've got this up-close perspective. Was there something different you learned as you made your own career and you saw what she was doing and how she operated? Well, I will say that my life evolved. I mean, I met my wife, I got married, and, and I think... Um, her marriage to Marty, her husband, was, was truly inspiring and maybe something I came to understand uh, even better after I was married. And, of course, she lost Marty uh, 10 years ago, a bit more than that, and that was uh, such a difficult experience for her, I'm sure. Uh, she was very brave about it, but anyone who knew them both 
knew how close they were. So um, it was more that there were new life experiences which shed, you know, shed more light. Were there things you saw her demonstrate that impacted the way you dealt with students, with interns, with colleagues, with people perhaps who weren't at the same level as you based on your, your teaching and the fact you were dean? Well, uh, one of the great things about having Justice Ginsburg as a teacher is that you try to learn to be a teacher the way she was. And I, I certainly hope that I can do that for people. Um, and it's a combination of inspiring people to do good work, showing them how to do it, and uh, you know, showing them also when they can do it better and the details of what would be better. So, uh, again, I feel very lucky to have had that experience with her, and I, I hope that I'm able as a teacher to give that to others. One lesson Dean Schizer told us he learned early on from Justice Ginsburg was the strength of conviction of ideas while leaving room for civil political discourse with those who disagree. I, myself, am politically conservative. I was a member of the Federalist Society, which is a group of uh, conservative lawyers. I was the vice president of my student chapter when she hired me, continued to be active my entire career, um, and we were very close. And the point is, it's not that we agree uh, on everything, quite, quite the opposite. But she was very comfortable with um, being uh, a part of an intense conversation. She was happy to have people point out limitations in the arguments she was making. To her, that was a way to make her work better. And uh, it does, I, I mean, I always thought it was very much to her credit that she was so comfortable with a clerk who maybe didn't always agree with what she thought. But it's very much the same thing with Justice Scalia, and I think he felt the same way about her. They were both brilliant people committed to the law. They had different views on some issues. Um, and I think by, um, by interacting, each made the others work better. It sounds like it's a lesson we probably all could use these days with the partisan divide that we see. Well, I, I certainly agree with that, and I would say also about Justice Ginsburg that she was unfailingly courteous and collegial, and she knew how to disagree um, in a way that wasn't personal, and, and her arguments were were forceful. I mean, she, she was an advocate, and she would make a, a strong argument, but it was, but she would never imagine that she wanted to insult someone or to, to you know, to cut them down. It, it was all on the merits for her, and I think that was part of the power of 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 her advocacy is it was it was um something you could evaluate without feeling threatened we went to one other spot to hear about the legacy of ruth bader ginsburg rutgers law school in new jersey it was her first job as a law professor, but it was not without its challenges. As the story goes, she was hired in 1963 and told she would be making less than her male counterparts, simply because she was a woman and her husband had already had a good-paying job. While at Rutgers in 1970, she helped found the Women's Rights Law Reporter there. That's the first law journal in the nation 
to focus exclusively on women's rights. We reached out to Priscilla Abraham, a recent graduate of Rutgers Law and former managing editor of The Law Reporter. We wanted to hear how Justice Ginsburg inspired her. So I knew of Justice Ginsburg prior to attending law school um, as a politically involved person working and living around the Washington, D.C. area. I knew of her judicial advocacy uh, for gender equality and voting rights. Uh, once I got to law school, I began to fully grasp what her advocacy meant. Um, reading U.S. v. Virginia, her famous BMI case in my first year of constitutional law class, uh, taught me how to frame legal arguments that expand protections for women and people of color using the very instruments that have been used to repress us. Um, in the RBG documentary, uh, I think Gloria Steinem summed it up perfectly uh, when she said that Justice Ginsburg made it seem like the Constitution was meant to protect us. Um, I also learned about her legacy at Rutgers Law as a professor there, um, as well as her crucial role in bringing the women's rights law reporter to Rutgers Law School. Uh, the reporter is the first legal periodical that focuses on women's rights um, in any law school in the country. Uh, so we recently celebrated the reporter's 50th annual um, anniversary symposium. Um, it was hosted, hosted right before COVID, actually, in March, um, and it focused on issues that you deeply cared about. So we had a panel on reproductive justice um, and as well as socioeconomic gender inequality uh, with some great speakers who came in uh, from New York, New Jersey, um, as well as Washington, D.C. Uh, another panel that the symposium focused on uh, was a lack of reproductive, a lack of uh, rights and protections uh, for women and gender nonconforming folks in criminal justice um, and immigration attention. Um, this, was, this provided more of an intersectional approach, um, which I think is a new area of feminist lawyering um, that kind of merged Justice Ginsburg's legacy with the emerging civil rights concerns of our time. Um, I also learned about her fierce, um, her legacy as a fierce civil rights attorney uh, that inspired uh, me to seek an internship with the ACLU New Jersey um, as my first summer job in law school, as she had uh, also worked at the ACLU um, in New York right after um, her time at Rutgers as a, as a professor there. Uh, so while my focus um, in my legal career is advocating for immigrant rights, uh, Justice Ginsburg has forged a path uh, for attorneys like myself and other female attorneys um, that want to be at the forefront of human and civil rights um, issues in this country. So I, when I think about Justice Ginsburg, um, I think of someone who has forged that path um, that allows me to continue the conversation that she started. Um, and my role in it would be to advance immigrant rights. You talk about the VMI case. When you read that case, were there other cases, and, and what did you see that really spoke to you about issues that were important to you? Yeah, I think the VMI case, uh, I think the fact that it was so recent, it was only 1996 uh, that came, the case came out before, before the Supreme Court, um, and the arguments that were used uh, by uh, by the school to continue to disallow uh, women to enter. Um, it was almost separate but equal argument, um, but you know, dedicated towards women. Um, the the VMI attorney was arguing, well, this there are certain form of vigor that need that needs to be part of the school that only met young men can really endure, and. Single-sex education on its face is not discriminatory, um, but Justice Ginsburg rightfully uh, 
you know, said that uh, in, in her majority opinion that separate but equal is not equal and that there was no comparable, real comparable experience to being a VMI student and then after graduate uh, for women um, who want to pursue um, a career. Um, whether it's military or um, politics afterwards, VMI graduates do a range of things after graduating. Um, but I think it was that she utilized the instruments of the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s in order to further advocate for women's rights so that there was no, um, you know, that we can still fight for these uh, for these issues, but to f- uh, further shrink the gap between women and men um, in the law as well as um, opportunities. And I think VMI was a step in the direction of it's not just, you know, whatever is in the law, it's the opportunities that come from having access to certain points of privilege in our society. Priscilla Abraham was sworn in as an attorney in the New Jersey bar this summer. She tells us she's already landed her dream job focused on the work she did as a fellow in the Rutgers Immigration Law Clinic. She describes the work she's doing now as being like a public defender for immigration detainees. And one more thought from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's one-time law clerk, David Schizer. Somehow she became an unlikely pop culture icon. How do you think that happened and what did she make of that? Well, I can tell you that it was the most improbable thing I've ever seen. Um, And I say this because, um, you know, when Justice Ginsburg would go to a movie, it was rare. But when she would go to a movie, she often would bring a flashlight with her along with some paperwork. And and that's the way she would spend the time. Um, Popular culture was not her thing. She loved opera. And I think to her, popular culture kind of ended with Mozart and Verdi. <laughs> so the idea that she then became a pop culture icon uh, was a truly remarkable turn of events. And I think she saw the irony in that. But I think she also enjoyed it. So here you have the notorious RPG on T-shirts, uh, you know, memes and, and Saturday Night Live. Do you think... She she got it and she understood the fact that a whole new generation was thinking of her maybe in a whole different kind of light. So I'm sure it's something she never expected, but I think it is something she appreciated. And uh, part of the reason I, I think this is that she would give notorious, R, you know, RBG shirts as gifts. <laughs> the gifts she gave the rest of us who only knew her from afar, was the gift of an extraordinary life well-lived. 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Sheld. Thank you for listening to our stories each week. If you are not subscribed, just search 880 In-Depth wherever you get your podcasts and be safe. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours 
and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.